0: we are going to be in 1st corinthians 16 because what's been on our plate for the last 9 months is the book of 1st corinthians we go through verse by verse and chapter by chapter so if you have bibles then 1st corinthians 16 is where you want to turn so i am going to read verses 12 through the end and then we'll begin our study 1st corinthians chapter 16 verse 12 says now concerning our brother apollos I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints." that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I'm glad about the coming of Stephanas, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied. They refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The churches in Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed, O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. If you remember back to the beginning, we talked about the intro to the book of 1 Corinthians. It's been, as I said, about nine months since we started, and what a nine months it has been. This was a church planted, started by the Apostle Paul in the city of Corinth in ancient Greece. This was a city terribly immoral, very wealthy, lots of problems and divisions in the church. As we get into Second Corinthians, you'll see just some of the problems that existed and were perpetuating between Paul and these Corinthian people. To Corinthianize was to be an immoral person. So their name, their city had become synonymous with immorality. That's how bad life in Corinth was. It was new wealth, kind of like Silicon Valley wealth. And they were spending their money on all kinds of immoral living. That's the place into which Paul planted this church. And what better place to plant a church than where there's immorality, which is pretty much everywhere. So this church trying to shine there, but struggling a little bit. And as we read the first couple chapters... We realized that one of the problems was a schism, a division. There were a bunch of traveling teachers that people would enjoy more or enjoy less. How many of you have a favorite Bible teacher? Just someone you connect with personally, and that's okay, that's all right. But the problem in Corinth was they were aligning themselves around these teachers and elevating them at the expense of others, and, well, we're of Paul, and we're of Peter, and, and one of those guys was a guy named Apollos, named after the Greek god Apollo, and Apollos, would meet him in the book of Acts, a fantastic orator. He was known. He could present a sermon that would just make you sit on the edge of your seat. It was wonderful. You were engaged the whole time and a great speaker. And some of the people in the church, they really didn't like Paul very much. Paul was a little spindly guy with one big long eyebrow and knocked knees. This is church history tells us that. Eye problems, his eyes were watering. He couldn't see real well. Not a real commanding presence, but Apollos. He was a commanding presence. So evidently, as they write, verse 12 says, now concerning our brother Apollos. So they had written to him, written to Paul, and declared, hey, we want Apollos to come visit. And why isn't he here? I mean, Paul, have you kept him from coming to visit? Remember, there was a division in the church over these guys, over Paul and Apollos. And it was causing real problems in the church over who was preaching and, and who to follow. And evidently, they'd asked for Apollos to come. And Paul said, and I would have said, I ain't asking, to, this is my church. I'm not asking Apollos to come. You guys like him too much. And I feel bad about myself because you like him better. Makes me feel bad, but not Paul. He says, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren. Maybe when Timothy came, I think that they were accusing Paul of keeping Apollos away. And Paul says, no, 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 no. I was encouraging him to come. The issue's not on my side. It says, but instead he throws him under the bus. Do you see that? He says, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. It's so real, the Bible, it's so real. A lot of times we skip these chapters. But I like this about Apollos. It says he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he'll come when he has a convenient time. Now, we don't know if he ever went back there. We don't know if he ever returned. But the one quick thing I like about Apollos is that in ministry, there's so much pressure There's so much expectation that people have of what pastors and teachers should do. And people are very demanding. Have you noticed that, that we live in a world of very demanding people? And usually we're very demanding of other people, but very excusing of ourselves. What I like about this is that Apollos, evidently Paul and Apollos had talked. Paul says, come on, man, you gotta go. Like, I'm urging you to go. But Apollos says, I appreciate that they want me and I appreciate that you're urging me to go, but it's not a good time. And boy, as a pastor, I need the freedom to be able to say that in my life, to say I can't be everywhere for everyone whenever they want me. There's some time, it's just not a good time. I've got some things going on. I mean, look, when you're a pastor, I just got an email from a friend of mine who planted a Bible college in India. And he said, hey, Steve, we'd love to have you come and teach a block class over here. And man, I'd love to go. And I'd love to go to Italy and help with work there. And I'd love to be right here in Fluvana, but I can't be in four places at one time. That was only three places, but you know, I'm exaggerating. (laughs) It could be in 16 places. So I say this for two reasons. Number one, I appreciate the confidence of Apollos that he could say no. I can't, it's not a good time right now. And if a good time comes, then I'll be able to make it. I'll be able to do it. But for now, between you and I, one thing I want to be able to say, sometimes I got family issues. I have a life of my own and I have things going on and lots of other ministries happening. But when you're going through something, sometimes that's all you can see. Like you can't see beyond the crisis you're having. And the whole world is supposed to stop for your crisis. And unfortunately, it doesn't always work that way. That's why you need good friends. I can be your pastor. And I believe me, I want to be there for you all the time. But I just can't be. So, I hope we give each other this freedom. Can we do that? Okay. That's what I like about Apollos. Verse 13, there's five quick commands, five quick imperatives. He says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, and let everything you do, let all that you do be done in love. Those are all in the imperative form in the Greek, which means they're commands. They're quick. This is the locker room firm pep talk. He says, watch, which means stay awake. And I'm saying that to you right now. Stay awake, watch, don't let your guard down, be on guard. This is the word used of Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. Therefore, stand guard. If you knew the thief was coming, if you knew someone was gonna rob your house tonight, would you hit the sack at around eight and just kind of go, well, whatever happens, happens? Or would you stay up, locked and loaded? You're ready. I know a thief's coming, like I'm gonna be ready. So you know in this world, that there are pressures and there are challenges. And there is Satan who is prowling like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. You got to stay awake. Some people are dead inside. They're spiritually dead. Others are just asleep. And they look the same, don't they? They look very similar. Deadness and asleepness look a lot the same. You're still unresponsive to the world around you, to the things around, the reality that exists around you. So, Paul is telling the Corinthians, and I think he's telling me and telling you, hey, wake up. Wake up to the times we live in. Wake up to the needs and the things around you. Wake up to spiritual things in your life. Watch, keep guard. Be vigilant about your life. Stand fast, hold your ground. Don't be wishy-washy. Again, to the Corinthians, all the outside pressures, the pressures of their culture, the pressures of their flesh and their desires, and the pressures of false teachings—and all these things... There's a lot of voices in our lives, aren't there? But there's one that really matters. That's the voice of our shepherd. And I want us to be dug in, cleats on, dug in. It's not about starting well in the Christian life. It's about finishing well. And you only finish well if you stand your ground. So Paul says to them, stand your ground, hold fast. And I like this one. My Bible translates it. The new King James says, be brave. Any King James readers here? All right, the the King James says, quit ye like men. Now, what in the world does that mean? It's just a one Greek word that means act manly or be a man or common terminology, man up. Now, it's not in reference to be manly because he's writing this to the whole church. How many of you know there's women in the church too? He's not saying to the women, you should be more like men. No, no, we are glad that you are women. This is not about male and female, this is about mature and immature. I think this preaches good on Mother's Day because I bet there's some ladies in here that got some men in their life that they wish would grow up. Just being honest, right? I've been in ministry for about, I don't know, 18, 19 years now, and I've seen enough men that still engaged in boyish, childish things. And Paul talked to the Corinthians about that. He said back in chapter 13, when I was a child, I thought like a child. I behaved like a child. I did childish things but then I grew up, I outgrew those ways of thinking. And so this is very similar to that kind of statement. He told them in chapter three, I wanted to give you solid truth. I wanted to give you meat, but I had to give you milk because you're still like babies. You're behaving like mere men, like everybody else. So he's told them, he tells me and you, there's a time just to grow up and stop complaining about the things you used to complain about. It's connected to be brave, acts of valor, being connected to manliness, bravery. As a Christian, you gotta be brave. Am I telling the truth? It takes some bravery. You gotta be courageous about the way you live and courageous about the things you say, the things you do. Loving and courageous. God needs courageous people. God needs Hebrews 11 kind of people. You know Hebrews 11, the hall of faith? I mean, faith makes you courageous, And the writer of Hebrews says, these kind of people that live by faith, that do these courageous things because they trust a living God, the world is not worthy of them. That's what Hebrews 11 says. You can check it out. These were men of whom the world was not worthy. Wouldn't you like that to be said of you at your funeral? Man, Steve, it's the world didn't deserve him. He was just too strong, too courageous, too loving. The world didn't appreciate him. Wouldn't that be great to be said at a funeral? So be brave and finally be strong. This is a word, there's a lot of words for strong in Greek. This is demonstrated power, kratos, where we get democratic, the power of the people. It's the demonstrated power. So really you could say, be empowered. Isn't that a great word for today too? Be empowered. We have too many victims, too many Christian victims. Oh, I'm just, I'm such a victim. No, the Bible says, be empowered. When you know the truth, come on church, that is empowering. I don't know if it's been your experience, but my experience, having lived my life for so long as a people pleaser and just knowing the truth, standing firm, knowing where I've come from, knowing where I'm going, knowing what life is about, has just made me much less manipulatable. That's a long word. I feel like I'm much less vulnerable to outside influences because I know the truth. And once you know the truth, Jesus said it, truth will set you free. Free from manipulation, free from vulnerability to coercion and influence. I can be, you can be empowered by the truths of the things of God. Because someone might come at you, but you know the truth. And someone might say this or someone might do that, but you know the truth. And that's empowering. He's encouraging them. Don't be victims. The truth is powerful. Stand on the truth. Be empowered. And then finally, he says the fifth of the exhortations, the fifth of the imperatives. He says, let all that you do be done with or in love. We tend to focus on what we are doing. Paul wants them to focus on how they're doing it. What you do is much less important than how you do it. When's the last time you just were conscious of really the feeling of being in love? You watch young people fall in love. And maybe when you can remember back to when you first fell in love, that's life-changing, isn't it? All of a sudden, you're skipping to work and you're singing all day. When a person is in love, it changes the way they behave. And I like that. He says, Paul says, let all that you do be done in love. You're in love with somebody. This is not about religion. This is all that we do being done. What if it said, let all that you do be done in anger? We could picture that, right? Picture doing everything you do, doing it in anger. You know? People wouldn't want to be around you. But now picture doing everything in love. Whole different deal, right? There's something real. There's something tangible there. We don't just say, well, hey, brother, I love you, but then we're angry after that. But this is for the Christian. The world doesn't understand this. The world doesn't get this. Let all that you do, not most, not some, not a few things. For us, we don't turn it on and we don't turn it off. It's always on. Let all that you do. If you're going to do it, then do it in love. Whatever that's called for, don't do it because you get a paycheck. Love is the bottom line for us. Are we together with that church? All right. Verse 15, he says, I urge you, brethren, speaking of doing all things in love or with love, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas. I mean, you've experienced them, that it is the first fruits of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. Now, remember, in the church in Corinth, there was some bad influence. Just because someone is in church doesn't mean they're a good influence, right? It's an open door. Anybody can walk in here on a Sunday morning. In their church, Paul said it to them in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals, good values. So there's bad company In the church. So Paul's got to point out to them the good company, because you want the right influences in your life. And there's a way to know who to hang around, because you sort of become like those that you hang around with. There's an influence there. So Paul wants them to be influenced by people that are doing the right things, not people that are doing the wrong things. And so he highlights, he says, I urge you, Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna, I urge you, Corinthian church, and he points them to this guy, Stephanas. Now we met him in chapter one. Paul says, I baptized a few people in then, but oh yeah, I baptized this guy named Stephanus and his whole family, his whole household. So Stephanus, it says, is the first fruits of Achaia, which means he was one of the first people that got saved in Corinth. Achaia is the region that Corinth is in. So when Paul comes, shares the gospel, man, the first people, like a lot of people ignore it, And a lot of people don't want to talk, don't want to hear it. But Stephanus locked on. He heard it. He locked on. He got saved. He got baptized. I still remember the first couple I ever baptized. So exciting. A hot tub at Camp Friendship. Those were good days. Those were good days. It's so sweet. Paul, this fondness for Stephanus. It's not just him but it's his whole household. The whole family is doing the same thing. He gets a special mention. He says, you guys know them. They're part of you. They're from you. Wasn't somebody I brought in from another city that was traveling with me. They're from Corinth. And you see the choices from the time they got saved. You see the choices that they have made. Now, here's where, again, our King James has a little bit different translation than the New King James. The New King James that I read to you says, devoted themselves. But the King James says, addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Here's the only place where we can speak of someone addicting themselves. Usually it's something that happens to you. The word speaks of an arrangement, an order, to put things in an order, to assign something, a place. How many of you are very fastidious about where your stuff goes? Anybody? Like things have to be arranged just right I like living that way. I don't always do it, but I know where my stuff is. If my stuff is missing, I get real freaked out. Like I start to lose it. Where my keys are, the keys have to go in the same place. And that way I know where it is. I'm a little bit tweaky that way. Anybody relating to that? Okay, a few. So I like to know where my stuff is. So everything has to have a place so you know where to put it. How many of you have a junk drawer? That's where all the stuff goes. I have a place. So the place becomes the junk drawer and it's just all there. So to the word that's translated addicted means to arrange in an order, to have an order for. And I like this, they addicted themselves to the ministry. They didn't wait till people asked them. They didn't wait till Paul asked them. They just jumped in and started serving God's people. I remember I point this out every so often. There's a guy that comes to church here named Harold. And Harold showed up, I don't know, maybe our second or third church service. We were meeting in the old Palmyra school on route 15. I come into the church I'm rolling in just before the service starts and there's a guy handing out bulletins at the door. I've never seen him before. And he's like, here, have a bulletin. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. I said, who are you? He said, I'm Harold. You've been coming here long. No, it's my first day. (laughs) Like, I love you. He's still here at the church. It's just fantastic. But there's that heart of just, you know, I'm just going to get in. And serve. So many people are waiting. Oh, I can't find it. Just find something to do. If you go and you notice the bathroom is dirty, clean it. And we, we just complain. They just devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Whatever people needed, they were there. Now, here's what I like about this. And hang with me for a few minutes on this. Addiction. We know addiction. We talk about addiction a lot. We talk about opioid addiction. We talk about alcohol addiction. We talk about addiction a lot in our current culture, don't we? It's Everywhere the opioid addiction is a crisis. It's a healthcare crisis. It's a family crisis. It's a human crisis. There's a lot of people dying overdosing on opioids. So we understand addiction, and we understand that addiction orders, arranges our life. Matthew twenty-eight sixteen, Jesus uses the same word when he tells his disciples, "I want you to go to Galilee, and I want you to wait for me there at the place that I appointed." Same word, appointed. They had an appointment, a time and a place to be somewhere. That was the way that their day was arranged. Are you good at keeping a calendar? If it doesn't make it into my cell phone calendar, it doesn't exist. So I have to be fastidious about writing my appointments down so I know what's going to order my day. I get up in the morning, open up my calendar. What's going on today? Well, for people that are addicted, it's the addiction that orders the life. I got to figure out when to engage in the addiction. I got to figure out, where to buy it, how to get it, when to use it. And I'm thinking ahead about it. I'm longing for it all day long. I have the whole plan. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The addicts in here know exactly what I'm talking about. That addiction, whether it's smoking or video games or even coffee to a certain degree. I can't, no, I can't. Gotta have my first cup of coffee. Can't think, can't function. I'm not condemning you. I'm just saying the addiction orders a lot. Can't work until coffee. Coffee first, then conversation. Just how it goes. So the addiction orders, and I have it all planned out. I go to the grocery store after work, I get my six pack, I go home, I turn on the TV, and that's my habits. They're life-dominating habits that involve making plans, thinking ahead, locating, using, sharing. Maybe Stephanas, let's just imagine he was one of the people from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Remember, Paul said there were some people in the church, some of you were adulterers, some of you were drunkards, some of you were thieves, but you were washed. You were cleansed and you were justified. You were sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. Your life has changed. Now, the problem is when you've had an addiction, when you've had a life-dominating addiction and all of your life revolves around that thing and you give it up, now what do you have? A huge hole in your life. And you go, what in the world do I do now? What do I do with all the time I used to spend over there? You used to say, phew, you know, hey, come on down to Bible study. Phew, I'd love to, but uh, you know, I... I got, I'm busy. And busy meant I got to go home and engage in my addiction. Or what about money? You know, oh, how about just donating to this thing we have going on at the church? How about sponsoring a child for school? Or how about sponsoring a missionary for a trip to Africa? I'd love to, but I don't have enough money. How much do you spend on your addiction? How much does that thing cost you? Oh, I don't have any money. But now imagine, flip this around. Now your addiction is no longer an issue. Now, but You go, what am I going to do with my life? Well, like Stephanas... Serve the Lord. And now someone calls up and says, Hey, um, let's go use together. Let's go party. Let's go use. But you got to get some stuff, some drugs to bring with you. Oh, drugs. Man, I I don't have any money. I started giving at the church and now I'm supporting three kids from Africa and they need food and clothes and I'm helping with that. And addiction? Who's got money for that? And what about time? Come on, let's go out Friday night. No, no, Friday night. I got Bible study Friday night. I remember having that moment like, It's one of those moments where you're kind of like in the twilight zone. Some of you know, I was never much into drinking, but I worked at bars a lot when I was in college and grad school and around that lifestyle. And I remember a number of years ago, after I had been saved, just a few years, getting in a car with a group of guys that I knew from church. We're like piling in this car on our way to Sunday night Bible study at a Calvary Chapel in Louisa. And I looked around, I thought, this is weird. I used to be piling in the car to go to some party somewhere, to go to something, and now we're piling in the car. What a work God does in our lives. Instead of hungering to satisfy the negative addiction, now I'm hungering to satisfy the positive addiction. Oftentimes, that's the key to getting over addiction, because if you don't put something else into place, you just fall back to the old habits. You need something else to devote your life to. Man, I'm doing these things, I'm involved with church, I'm making meals for people now, and I Man, I want to give blood at the blood drive, but if my blood is dirty, I can't give blood. And and this is what the Lord does. The addiction used to call the shots, and I obeyed. I was a user. But now you can purposely arrange your life around blessing God's people, and you can become useful. What a difference. And I just picture Stephanus, who knows what his life was like, but now it's noted by the Apostle Paul. Take note, he says, they have addicted themselves to the ministry, to serving. They're not in full-time paid ministry. That doesn't mean that. It just means serving. They just want to help out people. Just want to be involved in blessing people's lives. And Paul says, it's that kind of person when you're looking for someone to follow, whose life to emulate, to be mentored by. He says, you submit to such. That's the kind of person you should line your life up underneath. It's the same sort of word, same root word as addicted, submitted. So Stephanus and his household, they had submitted themselves. They had arranged their lives around ministry. And then Paul says, all of you people in the church, you can arrange your lives underneath them. It's not about what you say and how many verses you have memorized. The real sign. I mean, a person that is most like Jesus will be a person that is serving people energetically, with a humble and grateful heart. And that was Stephanus, not out of obligation or religious duty, but Stephanus was the real deal. And that's who he says you can get behind. You can align yourself under. And everyone, and not just Stephanus, but everyone who is expending energy and laboring to exhaustion. Ministry is tiring. You know that people are tiring. Emotional stuff is tiring. And at the end of the day, When I was working with my hands, I'd much rather be physically tired than emotionally tired. Emotionally tired is a whole nother kind of tired. You know what I'm talking about? And when you get in ministry, you get in people's lives and you start to come alongside of them and join them where they are. And man, it's it's exhausting. And we labor for people. We labor for souls and lives. And then the day you just lay your head down and go, I am exhausted. There's a big difference between being worn out and being burnt out. There are two different things. If you're burnt out, that's no good. That means you've been drawn from no source. You got no well to draw from. But being worn out, I want to be worn out for the Lord. I got one life. I'm gonna be 50 this year. I'm only gonna be 49 once. I'm only gonna be 50 once. You're only gonna be 22 once or 23 once. You're only gonna be 30 once. You only go around once. You only have one race to run and you got to decide, am I useful? Does my life matter? You know, they've asked, hang with me, hang with me. We will get done. This is important stuff. There was an EMT, rescue squad guy. He's oftentimes with people in their final moments of life. They've had a traumatic accident. There's a mortal injury and they ask him in that moment, am I going to die? And he said, for years, I would lie to them. I would say, no, 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 you're going to be fine. You know, I was afraid to tell them the truth, whether it's a heart attack or whatever they were having. And he said a number of years ago, he stopped lying to them. And he was amazed that what he found happened. He said that I found that people were much more peace than I expected. They would ask me, am I going to die? And he would say, yes, in fact, you are. And they said a peace would come over them. And they would say three things. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to remember all three of them, but only one of them really matters for the sermon. I want to know that my life mattered. There were three things he hears over and over and over again from people in their dying moments. Number one, I want to know that my life mattered. Number two, I want to know that people that I love to know that I love them. And number three, I want to know that I'm forgiven. Three huge things people wanted to know. All three answered in the gospel. I have no idea how I got there. Oh, exhaustion, expending energy. Come on, Steve, stay on track. Verse 17, verse 17. I'm glad about the coming of Stephanas, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. So more people in the church to take note of. Stephanas, Fortunatus, his name means lucky, and Achaicus, they might be slaves, or people that were working for Stephanas, they were in his household Maybe, maybe not, we don't know, but they traveled together and they took the Corinthian letter to Ephesus where Paul was writing from. So they go meet Paul. What was it they supplied that was lacking on the part of the Corinthians? Verse 18 tells us, they refreshed my spirit and yours. When they came, Paul says, I rejoiced. He just loved refreshing relationships. And when they came, they had fellowship together. They enjoyed each other's company. Do you have people like that in your life? How many of you have draining relationships? Don't raise your hand because they might be sitting next to you. How many of you have draining relationships? Do you know you need refreshing relationships? That some people are just more refreshing. And when you're with them, you just feel joy. You just feel refreshed. And that's how Paul says, man, the Corinthians, you guys wear me out. But what they did for me, they refreshed me on your behalf. So as he continues on in the greetings, verse 19 says, the churches of Asia greet you. Book of Revelation, there's seven churches that are written to in that. That's where Ephesus is in Asia, modern day Turkey. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. So all the very common greetings here. Aquila and Priscilla, we know they moved around a lot. But the cool thing about them is that wherever they are, whether they're in Rome or whether they're in Ephesus with Paul. They worked together. Paul worked with them. They all had the same trade. But wherever you find this couple, their house is open to the church. Hey, there's one couple in the church, and they're here in the service, but because this will be on the radio, I'm not going to mention names, but they're moving down to Southwest Virginia. And I picture them in the same heart of Aquila and Priscilla. They've had a house group here in Fluvanna for a number of years, very successful, open their home, open their hearts. And I have no doubt that once they get to their new location, they're going to do the same thing. They open up their house. Hey, this is a place where we can meet. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, that would freak a lot of people out today, wouldn't it? It was men with men, women with women. If you've ever been to Europe, they do the kiss on each cheek or two kisses on each cheek. If you get a chance, you can look into the Maori people. I think uh, New Zealand They do something when they greet each other. It's probably going to mispronounce it. Hongi, H-O-N-G-I. When you greet, the Maori people greet one another. They touch foreheads and noses. That's how they greet. I mean, let's try that next Sunday. We'll have extra mints at the door. But greeting one another, that feeling of warmth and welcome to say, hey, this is a place I can come and I belong. And I can feel like I'm part of the family here. The greeting is traditional. We tried to remove it from our service. Well, maybe, you know, some people are uncomfortable with the greeting. Maybe we could take that out. And we tried that. And boy, did it change the feeling of our service. All of a sudden, it felt colder. So that's why we still greet. We do it with a handshake now, which is uh, suitable. But in that culture, it was a a holy kiss, not an unholy kiss. Don't want to greet with unholy kisses. A holy kiss on behalf of Christ. Verse 21 As Paul signs, they sign their letters at the end, much like we do, Paul signs it. Remember, Paul didn't often write his own letters because Paul had contracted some type of eye disease, could be the thorn in his flesh mentioned in 2 Corinthians, but he's got some eye disease, he's almost blind. So in one letter, he says, look at the salutation in my own hand, look how big my letters are. So Paul has someone else write the letter for him, he grabs the pen or the writing utensil at the very end, and he signs his own letter to authenticate it. And you could always tell Paul's signature because it was with real big letters because of his bad, weepy, blinded eyes. And then kind of the final word here, he says, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. Two words, anathema is accursed. It's the Greek word anathema. And then the word for O Lord, come. Maranatha. You've heard those two words, anathema and maranatha. It seems awful harsh, doesn't it? When Paul says, if anybody doesn't love the Lord, let them be accursed, literally damned. Let them be set apart for destruction. And he's writing. He's not writing to unbelievers. Remember, this is a letter to the church. So if there's anybody in the church that is there for selfish purposes, for their own reasons, to meet their own kind of twisted goals, then let him be accursed. Don't use God's people that way. You see why he's being so hard? And there were people in the church doing that. So Paul says, if anybody who wants to sponge off of or to manipulate or to use God's people for their own good, think about Jesus's response to the money changers in the temple. We don't see Jesus get angry too often, but man, when he was in that temple and he saw religious people putting a barrier in the way of people coming to God, Made him angry, made him angry. And I think whenever we see people using God or church or spiritual life for their own purposes, that should make us angry. So Paul says, if there's anyone, this is what it boils down to. It's not about church. It's not about ritual. It's about loving Jesus. That's what he says. If anyone, it doesn't say if anyone does not show up for church at least once a month, that's the minimum. Just, just show up once a month so we can count you and feel good because a lot of people came. That's not what he says. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, how do you know? How do I know I love the Lord Jesus? Well, we know for sure. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Just do what I say. Just love people. We can't love a God we can't see, right? Well, how do I love Jesus? Does he want flowers? He said, I made all the flowers. Can He give him flowers? He said, if you can't love me, but you can love that person next to you on my behalf. And he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Remember when Peter is reinstituted in the ministry? Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Then build a statue for me. No, he didn't say that. If you love me, Peter, tend my flock. Take care of my people. And then he says, so if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And he says, oh Lord, come. It's Maranath is an exclamation, this reminding us, Jesus is coming again, and that's when he'll come to pronounce judgment on planet earth. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen, amen. Where would we be without the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? What a wrapping to put on this. Of all that's been said, of all that we've talked about, of all that we wanna do and wanna be in Christ, for all that we fall short, for all that we have bad days and we blow it, I like that ending. Then let the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen, church. Congratulations. We've just finished the book of 1 Corinthians. Amen, amen.